podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. Today's podcast features Zoka Joseph, a 2008 LC Choi Lee Scholar and Zell Fellow who received her Master of Fine Arts degree in 2009. She received her undergraduate and graduate degrees in her native India. Zoka is the author of three chapbooks and a full-length collection of poetry. She's a poet, educator, editor, leader of creative writing workshops, manuscript coach, performer, and speaker. She recently published her third poetry chapbook called Sparrows and Dust. Zoka, welcome to the Strength in the Midst of Change podcast. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us your story, including how you decided to come to U of M for your MFA? Uh, hi, Tiffany. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to this wonderful podcast. And I am delighted to share my story with you. I'm from India, as you know. I was born in Mumbai, but my father got a job in Calcutta soon after, so we moved there. And so I lived there for a better part of my life, and I was educated there. And I worked in Kolkata as a high school English teacher. And in 1997, my husband and I moved to the U.S. Actually, we moved first to Chicago. And he was working in the IT industry. And if you remember, around that time, there was the Y2K crisis. So a lot of people in IT were getting jobs in the U.S. And that's how we moved here. So he had a work permit, and I didn't. And I didn't, we didn't have a green card yet, and we had to go through the whole process. So as somebody who couldn't work, I became a volunteer at a middle school in my area in Chicago called Nettlehorst Elementary. And I loved that school. I helped them with their reading program. And I also became a volunteer at the Indo-American Center on Devon in Chicago, where there was a huge Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan population. And I taught ESL there, and I made many, many friends with an elderly population of South Asians. And they embraced me, and it sort of helped me also, because I was missing home so much. And then in 2000, my husband got a job at Chrysler. So we moved to Michigan and we lived in Rochester Hills. And being a completely suburban area, it was very, very lonely and very difficult for me. But I made good use of the library. And of course, because my background was in literature, I was reading a lot anyway. But I got curious and I took a few writing workshops at the library there. And the poet there, who often taught those workshops, was Margot Lagatuta, who has now passed on. But she had a sort of following in Michigan, and it was interesting to be in those workshops. I was probably the youngest person there and the only person of color, so it was quite interesting. But soon after, I began to take more workshops in different places. I attended conferences, and then my poems started getting published in journals, and I started winning 
honorable mentions and a few prizes here and there. And that was pretty amazing. And during that time, a lot of the women in my workshop, which used to be taught by Mary Jo for Gillette, who is a wonderful, wonderful person and teacher, and I think is responsible for coaching many of us. People were talking about an MFA, and I didn't know what that was. People were enrolled in MFAs or wanting to do MFAs. And I got more curious about it. And I asked, I said, how does one do this? And then I realized how much it cost. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is not going to happen. And then somebody mentioned that I should apply to the University of Michigan because their Zell program there was a fully funded program. And so I thought, okay, why not? Let me give it a shot. And that's how I first applied the very first year, and I got rejected. So I thought, okay, this is not going to work. And my husband and I thought we'd be perhaps moving away to a warmer place if this part of my plan didn't work. But somebody encouraged me to apply the second year, and so I did. And I was rejected again. So I thought, okay, there's my sign. It's it's not going to happen. But the same year, I attended the Bear River writing retreat that U of M runs at Michigania. And I thought, okay, let me work with some of the professors there at least. And so I went, and I had the most amazing time. I got to meet these wonderful professors who were all celebrity poets themselves. And they took a huge interest in my writing, and they felt strongly that I should be in the program. And told me, you know, apply again, uh, you know, come back. But what interestingly, what happened is by the time I returned home, I think we had discussed it. And apparently somebody who was enrolled in the program, you know, sometimes people don't enroll even if they are admitted into the program. And I think there were a couple of dropouts. And so the director of the program called me and said, you know, there's a seat open, and they offered it to me. So it was like a bolt of lightning had hit me, and I felt like somebody up in the heavens or somewhere had moved, shifted something, some energy. I just fell on the ground, and I, I wept, and my life literally changed from that moment on. So that's how I came to my MFA at the University of Michigan. It's quite an adventure. Oh, for sure. It sounds like an amazing path you've been on. And the fact that you had the insight to go to Michigania for that writing retreat um, really led to where you're at today. Uh, You know, it's amazing what one decision does for us. Right. And that particular moment, I've been attending uh, for a long time and conferences, you know. But at this particular one, because it was run by the University of Michigan, there were professors at the University of Michigan teaching workshops. So I got to be in a very personal space with them, and they got to know me. And I didn't realize what an impact that would have. You know, they got to read my work, got to see my work ethic. You know, it's unbelievable sometimes to think that happens. Oh, for sure, yeah. As a writer, what are your sources of inspiration and what writing habits do you employ? I think for any writer, reading is a huge part of life, huge impetus, huge stimulation, and huge resource. So I think anything we read, our minds are always sort of responding or reacting or thinking. 
about words and images and responding to things we read. So for me, just reading poetry or literature and attending readings and lectures and craft talks are huge stimulations for me. So I get very excited about being present in these worlds. And very often there'll be some threads of thoughts or images that will come, which will ultimately lead to, you know, maybe a rough draft, which will develop into a strong piece of writing. The other thing that is very much part of my life is nature, birds, animals. You know, just the world of nature and knowledge of them is very much part of my life. This seems to creep into my writing quite unconsciously. So it's very much there. I don't think about it, but they just sort of enter my world. And I guess the other thing I would say is anything that I feel strongly about or I'm feeling very deeply, it could be grief, uh, it could be anger, that sort of inspires, you know, a sudden rush of words and thoughts. And I think it's similar for a lot of other writers. I think some writers prefer to have a project or a particular trajectory to their work, but I'm a very sort of open, freewheeling writer. So I write wherever my thoughts take me, and then the making of a book comes in much later. A lot of people think of how they're putting a book together first. So my process is quite different. And as far as a writing habit, I, um, I'm almost guilty to say that I don't have a particular writing habit. I know all good writers are supposed to. But I write every now and then. And often it's when I'm very agitated about something or very deeply concerned about something that gets me started. But that when I do, I tend to write a lot. And what happens then is all those streams of thoughts and ideas that are just, you know, sort of spilling on the page, I can later shape and pick out and change and make into sometimes two or three poems. So I would say that that would probably be my process. Not a prolific writer, as people sometimes think. It's just that writing has been going on over a long time and then you collect them into a book you know it's not like the book just happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. how do you make the final determination of which pieces make it into the book a lot of it is determined by theme and as a writer you're already sort of very tuned to themes and ideas and images and you can see okay these poems are about immigration and they also connect to memory and loss and displacement So they can have interconnecting themes. It's another art to arrange them into a book. Sometimes that is called the poem of the book. So it's not just the poems you write, but how you arrange them. For example, almost like how a film director or a playwright would organize what comes first, what should come next, what kind of impact will this poem have as a first poem or as a last poem. A lot of thought goes into that process. But for me, because I write little bits and pieces over a long period of time, then I sit down with 
several of those pieces because I know they have interconnecting themes. And then it becomes this whole wonderful project of putting a book together. So I put in work, I pull out the work, I put in new poems, pull them out. So there's a lot of thought and time that goes into it. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like the process I use when selecting like quilting blocks of how to arrange yes, it in a way yes, that makes sense. Absolutely. absolutely. And so much of artistic decisions and aesthetic decisions, just the same way as a painter would do, or as you said, quilt maker, you have these patches and then... How will it look all together as a piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can tell based on how you described your work with the Sri Lankan community and with the children through your workshops that you really enjoy being a writing coach. You know, what in the work really I, drives you and it makes you passionate about it? You know, I think it's something so intrinsic. I think I was born with this sort of, I, I don't know, it's an impetus that I've had for a long time, I don't question it because it just comes so naturally, I think. And I think just the joy of guiding uh, people through the process of discovery. So they're not just discovering an art form, they're also discovering themselves. And whether it's, you know, just students or whether it's my clients who I'm working with on a book or, you know, memoirs or novels, because I work in various genres. And it's just very exciting for me because I find for me that moment of, you know, often they reach a breakthrough in their own writing that shifts their way of thinking in a very vital way. And I think to me that's an amazing moment for me. It's very gratifying because it seems as if, you know, the whole mind has shifted in the process of learning from one level to another, or they received a certain insight that they never thought about. And I think, you know, even if it's a poem on an online journal somewhere, or their book gets accepted by a press, you know, I mean, those things give me great joy. And I think that's what keeps me going, even though I am not connected to the larger academic world. I do my own workshops and I'm an independent educator, but those are the moments that truly make everything worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Not all of us can describe that writing process quite as smoothly as you did. What advice do you have for those of us who often have to overcome writer's block? It's very interesting because sometimes I think the way writer's block is described is always negative, but I I think sometimes it's just your mind telling you that you need space or time. I've heard it also called as a gestation period where your mind needs time to process and think because it's building up something really important to write about or thinking about something important that will get written about at some point. Maybe you're not ready to write it yet. So there are many ways of looking at writer's block, and uh, sometimes it's beneficial. But I'm guessing that, you know, when you are involved in academia or you have to write papers and, you know, things like that, I'm talking more in terms of creative writing, so it's not really academic papers, but sometimes it can be similar. But I think if it's interfering with your literary work or job in a significant way, 
then I think you would have to carve out some time every day or every week to sit and write. And, you know, you can set yourself prompts, like, you know, respond to something someone said to you or respond to a current event or just let it all out, you know, like let it be a therapeutic exercise and maybe that will help you to free up something that will help you come back to what you really want to write about. But I think each person deals with writer's block differently. And for me, since I don't write a lot regularly or every day, I think for me, the long gestation periods. <laughs> and then it's like something hits me and I get in the zone and then I need to write. So I think I can only explain it in the way that I experience it. Yeah, I love how you've reframed it, not as a weakness or a negative, but instead as just a different way of thinking about the same experience as perhaps it's our bodies telling us that we need to take a break and process. Particularly with what's going on, you know, people are writing so much about COVID and there are all these anthologies that are coming out about, you know, stories of people with COVID. And, and I find I just cannot write directly about COVID, but I know that it's sinking into my whole subconscious and I know that it will seep through in writing. But some people can write immediately and I have not been able to do that, you know. So I think people work with that sort of block in a very indifferent way. So I guess one has to work with it. Mm-hmm. Now you just published your third poetry chapbook, Sparrows and Dust. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. I'm delighted to share. Just like I said, it takes a long time, one, to get published. That means accepted by a press. You may have a book ready for years, but it doesn't get published. So sometimes, you know, this little book has been around for a while. So it's very pleased that Bridgeway Press and this wonderful professor and editor called M.L. Liebler. He's a professor at Wayne Street University Press. I'm just a wonderful mentor as well. So I was just really pleased this book finally came out. The road was a little rocky to that, but I'm glad it, it's happened. And, you know, just like all the other themes that I talked about, there are animals and their birds, but there's also memory, migration, journey, immigration, displacement, death, and loss that also come into this chapbook. And I think the overall theme, I would say, is journey. And I refer to a particular book of poems called The Conference of the Birds by Attar, who is a Sufi poet. So there are themes of Sufism in it, but there's also Judaism, Christianity, a little bit of Hinduism that sort of flickers through the book. So I hope people will enjoy it. I'm doing a reading for literati on the 5th of May, so I'm hoping people will sign up and listen and come and share my celebration. Oh, that's great. Now, I don't want to ruin any spoilers for people who are going to purchase your book, but would you mind sharing a couple of poems with us? Absolutely, absolutely. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read one is very imagistic, and it's if you look at the page, it's broken 
into three columns, so it's very visual. And it's called negative capability. And this term, negative capability, came from John Keats, who talked about how sometimes to write about something else, you have to literally empty yourself out to inhabit somebody else's world. And I thought in today's world, you know, how we really need to understand each other and maybe put ourselves into the shoes of somebody else. But this poem is more spiritual in spring. Negative capabilities. The wind has blown you here again, brought you to my deck. Oh, white crown sparrow, trill, trill, trill. Your striped head appeared from sunflower seed husks, moldy leaves that look like burned remains. Pick, pick, picking, scratch, scratch, scratching, clawed feet, kick high, fast, green gold. Stench rises from these soggy piles. Gold Michigan is just waking. Clouds thunder. So dreary, yet you return to feed, to revel in the mess of rot and dirt, to chase house sparrows and juncos. How the gardener, the red-winged blackbird, gives you grief. Still, they cannot save you. For a few days, O oh, winged visitor, I will claim you, who are like one who crosses back from another realm. What's left to know but the unknown? Arrival, departure. Arrival, departure. Oh, yes, a world can fall apart in an instant. See how flesh dissolves. Look, the wind whips my brown feathers. Hungry, I scrabble, pick what remains then for us. Open sky, sun. So night comes, stars wheel, we spiral higher, become air. Is this the bird way? The second poem is a style poem, so you see the story. It's a poem where I imagine I have lost both my parents, so a lot of the poems in this book are about where I imagine visits from my parents in spirit. And this poem is called, Mama, Who'd Have Thought. Mama, who'd have thought that after all these years in America, my love and I would finally have a place of our own? No, not a real house, house, but a condo beside a pond. Not a real pukur like the lakes in Bengal that dad used to fish in, but a man-made pond with a fountain where mallards and black ducks bring their broods of supercharged little ones, where the pipe grebe pops up in spring and fall, and the trumpeter swans I love so much visit too. Then the old regulars, the belted kingfisher, and a couple of blue herons come. Sometimes in deep summer, cormorants unfurl and sun their long wings to dry while still skimming the water. Dad would love this. Now you've come to see me, Ma. Let's go for a walk. Here, take my arm. Let me guide you down slowly to the bank. The pavements are smooth, not like those death traps in Kolkata. You're laughing. 
but careful. Here the ground is uneven and slopes sharply to the pond. You're right, that clump of grass is where the geese I told you about nested. Oh, so sad, yes. Oh, the neighbors are friendly. No, no, no one here is like us. Wait, let me show you the giant goldfish. How the big ones wriggle as the heron tries to swallow them. If it rains tonight, we'll surely see some shoals churning on the surface. And so funny, once when the kingfisher caught a fish that was too heavy, or maybe it was thrashing too hard, she must have dropped it. For days we wondered who left this dead goldfish on our patio. A sign from the spirit world that you live in now, we thought. And then, you won't believe this, one afternoon we see an osprey. It hovered and plunged into the pond, emerged with a goldfish the size of a kitten in its talons, and it flashes right past the big picture window, not two feet from where my love and I watched whilst hanging open. Yes, we took a photo, but it was all so sudden. It's all blurry. It happened so fast. That gorgeous bird stayed for two weeks. I think it will return. I think it will return this fall. The red-tailed hawks and Cooper's hawks are always hunting here. What? Are we safe? Yes, yes, and no. No, ma. America is not safe. Sure, some policemen kill people who don't look like them. It's scary. White men march nowadays, shouting threats. They put children in cages at the border. Have they no hearts? Bad things could happen to us here, too. This is our home now, Ma. You didn't want us to leave. You wept for days. Forgive us. We could not bring you here then. Now your spirit is here. Protect us. Please stay. Oh, those were beautiful. You have quite a gift for making visual through writing, both emotions as well as the environment. It's quite remarkable. Um, I'm really appreciative that you're willing to share those with me. Before we depart, is there anything that you'd like to share that I haven't asked about? I think what I'd love people to do is to explore a little more about Michigan writers. I think people are so involved in work, in life, and in all the difficulties. But I would love people to explore and to support writers in Michigan, writers and poets in Michigan. So to encourage libraries to have books by Michigan writers, particularly those of color, those who are immigrants, so that people learn more about their stories. And I would love more people to invite readers of color to their gatherings and do readings and encourage more people to support our local bookstores by buying books by Michigan writers and people of color and immigrants like myself. So it it does really help us as artists to have our work acknowledged and enjoyed. So that's my message, really, that I'd like to share. Sure. Are there websites or stores in particular that you'd recommend looking at to Um, find Michigan writers? Absolutely. Our local bookstores would be wonderful places to buy books at. Bookbound Bookstore in North Campus, 
Literati Bookstore right downtown here. And then in Detroit, there are two wonderful bookstores. One in Oak Park called Book Beat. And then there's one in Detroit itself called Pages. And there is also a bookstore in Ipsy, which is a bookstore run by black writers and workers, and it's called Blackstone. But I'd also be very happy if people explored my website and read about my work and shared it. And I would be happy to answer questions or recommend readers and speakers also for them. Yeah, well, this has been wonderful. And I'm so pleased, again, to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much, Zoka. Thanks so much, Tiffany. I'm, I'm just so proud to be part of CEW. Oh, yeah, you're an amazing, amazing person to have among our community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CEW's podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. To learn more about this episode or the services and virtual programming offered by CEW+, please visit cew.umich.edu. Here at CEW+, we navigate circumstantial barriers by providing academic, financial, and professional support to help you reach your personal potential. Established to support women through higher education, we lift up women and all underserved communities at the University of Michigan and beyond. Through career and education counseling, funding, workshops, events, and a diverse, welcoming community, we exist to empower. We are CEW+, and we are here to help you reach your potential. The University of Michigan resides on the traditional territories of the three fires peoples, the Ojibwa, Odawa, and Potawatomi.